Hello, I'm Helena Cobbin, the founder and CEO of Just World Books. We are so proud of all of our books that we always try to do something a little special with the authors when they come out. With our latest book, we had a bit of a conundrum, because the author, the renowned international law scholar Richard Falk, was scheduled to be in Geneva on the publication date, June 9th. So we tried to do something new to launch Falk's latest book, Chaos and Counter-Revolution After the Arab Spring. We decided to hold a globe-circling conference call, and we invited Phyllis Bennis of the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Institute for Policy Studies, to join us to lead a discussion with Richard about the book. The hour-long conference call produced a rich seminar that deeply analyzed some of the thorniest issues in the Middle East today. So please join the three of us, or mainly Richard and Phyllis, as you listen to this lightly edited recording of the call. It starts with my introduction. I'm on this call here from Charlottesville, Virginia, which is our headquarters. And the occasion for this call is, is the conference call is the launching of Richard Falk's wonderful new book, Chaos and Counter-Revolution After the Arab Spring. Um, the book is available from our website, www.justworldbooks.com, or from your favorite book retailer. And it covers just about all of the Middle East, with the exception of Israel and Palestine, both of which were covered in his earlier book, Palestine, The Legitimacy of Hope. So these are really, in a sense, two companion volumes that cover the amazing um, array of developments that have happened in the Middle East over the past five years. And of course, this book, um, Chaos and Counter-Revolution After the Arab Spring, um, covers things that have been happening in Egypt, Syria, Iraq, Libya, Iran, Turkey, and other countries of the region. I'm very, very pleased that we have Richard Falk here um, to discuss the book with Phyllis Bennis of the um, Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C. Richard, hello. You're in, in Geneva, I gather. Yes. Hi, Helena. I'm very happy and honored to be a participant in this new experiment of Just World Books. Well, good. Um, we uh, will be talking with you um, about Turkey, about Egypt, and about all of those um, things that have been happening in the region. And we'll probably talk, um, I'm going to let you and Phyllis Bennis talk for the first 20, 25 minutes. So, Phyllis Bennett, are you on the line from Washington, D.C.? I am. Very glad to be with you, Helena. Well, it, it's a funny way to be together. Um, it's a funny way. It's a pretty innovative way to, to launch a book. And I know that you, you're eager to talk to Richard about his book, um, Chaos and Counter-Revolution After the Arab Spring. So, why don't I let the two of you go at it? Well, thanks. Uh, it's good to be part of this. It's an innovative way, indeed, of launching a book. We'll see how it goes, but it's great to have an opportunity to talk with you and with Richard in particular and with everybody who's on the call. We'll have time later in the call, I think, for more questions and discussion. Richard, uh, your book ranges very uh, widely. It's, it's an extraordinary read. I really highly recommend it to folks listening, uh, not only in the, the geographic range of so many different countries in, in the broader Middle East, but also in the direction from which, the lens through which you look at these uh, developments since the Arab Spring. I wanted to start by asking you uh, something about the role of the U.S., which of course frames a great deal of your analysis, uh, part of the reason, of course, that the Arab Spring has morphed into chaos and counter-revolution can be traced back to so many aspects of U.S. foreign policy. But I wanted to start with a regional question, then we'll get to Turkey, the Turkish elections in Egypt and other things. But on the question of the region as a whole, when you use the, the question of the U.S. As a, as a frame through which to, to interrogate the issues around the Arab Spring and the related developments, 
uh, one of the things that you reference is the long history of U.S. strategic decisions going back many, uh, many decades to support authoritarian governments across the region as long as they are uh, pro-Western, if not pro-Israel, at least uh, that they are not anti-Israel, that they are sufficiently anti-Iran, at least since 1979 with the overthrow of the Shah. Uh, and if those criteria are met, uh, they will be essentially protected from having any real accountability for their ongoing massive human rights and anti-democratic violations of various sorts. It seemed that in the early stages of the Arab Spring, and even before, actually, relative to Turkey, there was a sense among many here in D.C. and elsewhere around the world in particular, I heard this a lot in South Africa, for instance, there was a sense that the Obama administration might be reflecting a new openness, a slight shift, not an entire reversal, but a slight shift in a new openness towards accepting what we might call moderate Islamism as the basis for relations with other countries. So this was particularly true in Turkey, where the U.S. was quite eager to maintain a tight relationship with, uh, with the, the Turkish government under Erdogan. And then in the context of the early period of the Arab Spring with Tunisia and especially Egypt, where what looked like it was coming to power was a kind of moderate, to use the Western term, or democratic Islamism. And the U.S. was perhaps going to be more willing to, uh, to be open to that, rather than holding to its long-standing position that only uh, the combination of either absolute monarchies or uh, secular military dictatorships were the only basis for U.S. relationships with Arab governments. Do you think that shift was indeed underway and was derailed through the Arab Spring, or was it really a fantasy of some to think that it was even being considered? Uh, no, I think that is a very important uh, issue that you raise, and I would trace the American uh, position during the Obama presidency back to uh, his early speech in 2009 in Cairo, where he proposed turning a new page in relation to the Islamic world and uh, specifically uh, referring to both the Palestinian struggle and to uh, the uh, desire for a positive relationship with the countries in the region, including Turkey that had been for several years under AKP Erdogan uh, leadership. I think that, that original impulse was thwarted by the Israeli pushback and by Turkey moving in a direction that was more independent of the U.S. grand strategy for the region. And probably in the background of all this was not only uh, Israel's uh, discomfort, but also Saudi Arabia's discomfort with this kind of accommodation with moderate Islamism, especially if it emerged as it had in uh, Tunisia, Tur uh, Egypt, and Turkey from a democratic process because Saudi Arabia in particular seems to, to have a politically allergic reaction to any form of democratic political development, but most especially to uh, those uh, democratic uh, movements uh, that have a, a moderate Islamist uh, character. And I think this has not changed the Obama approach, which is to accept the basic idea that in the Arab world, at least, uh, democracy uh, can't 
find a stable, stable roots, and it's best to revert to that accommodation, uh, positive accommodation with uh, the authoritarian tendencies that are prevalent throughout the region. You know, that raises the question uh, of the, the reversals in Egypt. I, I would argue that Egypt probably was, and I think your, your book reflects this as well, was uh, at, at the beginning seemingly the most important, uh, represented the most important shift through the early Arab Spring period, the idea that a popular movement backed by the military for its own as we see, its own uh, power-driven reasons, uh, could indeed play the role of uh, people's power overthrowing a U.S.-backed dictator. Uh, do you think that the reversal of that, of that process, was partly because of the effect after so many decades of, of lack of democracy, lack of uh, popular uh, voice among the, the people of Egypt, no sense of citizenship, no sense of rights. Suddenly people had the sense that they had overthrown this dictatorship. And then when, when Morsi, the, the first elected, fairly elected leader of, of, uh, of Egypt, who was, of course, tied to the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, when he consistently made mistakes in his presidency, including, crucially, the, the major error of really trying to concentrate power, in the presidency ahead of the creation of a new constitution. Do you think that the reason for the public embrace of the military's coup d'etat was bound up with that sense of empowerment that had come from the perception that they, that the people alone had overthrown uh, uh, Mubarak rather than it being something that was actually carried out by the military, but with this sort of public overlay uh, that pushed the military to take that step? Well, I think that's a complicated issue that is very hard to have a uh, definite view about at this stage because there's a lot of uh, obscurity, things that are not uh, known or at this point knowable. Uh, I, and, I, and I think there was a combination of uh, developments. Uh, you mentioned the governmental incompetence of the Morsi presidency, but that has to be set off against the uh, secular opposition to Morsi that tried, in my view, to create from the beginning of his presidency a crisis of legitimacy in Egypt that made a difficult presidency virtually impossible. And there were problems that were structural, such as a popular expectation that the material conditions in Egypt would improve rapidly. And when this didn't happen, there was a sense of disappointment, all compounded uh, by the inexperience of the Morsi leadership and its uh, uh, failure to really generate much confidence in its capacity uh, to govern or to improve the situation. I think there was also embedded in this democratizing process in the region a, a two sets of uh, deep uh, contradictions that emerged. One was that the more democratic a government w would be in the region, the more likely it would be to challenge uh, the American approach to the Israel-Palestine conflict. And if you remember, there was a very uh, strong populist uh, attack on the Israeli uh, embassy in Cairo, which I think was a signal of something uh, deeper. And the second was this, what I referred to earlier, uh, the Saudi Arabian uh, deep anxiety about any political tendency that suggested that an Islamist 
uh, political movement from below could take over the governing process in a country. And therefore, I think what uh, emerged in Egypt was decisive in creating this disappointing aftermath to the Arab Spring or Arab Awakening that seemed so exciting and unexpectedly remarkable as it, as it was unfolding in uh, January of 2011. You know, that raises the question. Uh, many have, have discussed this notion of the Arab Spring as a revolution. And I think one of the things that you address quite comprehensively in various parts of your book, in various uh, blog posts and, and essays, uh, is this caution, if you will, that uh, the, the tendency to sort of see these processes as one-off events. This is a revolution. We have overthrown a dictator, and therefore all motion now will be forward, forward ever, backward never, the old slogan from, from Grenada uh, being sort of applied as, as, a, as a given. This is now what will happen. And when it didn't, there was this sense of utter, utter despair among so many, partly because the, the pushback, the militarization from the government, the, the level of repression that has gone beyond even Mubarak's repression in terms of thousands of people imprisoned, uh, uh, I think more than 2,000 who have been killed uh, by the, the military government after the coup that overthrew Morsi. Uh, it's understandable why there's that level of, of uh, dismay and, and despair. But I wonder if when you, when you warn against that notion of seeing this as a one-off revolution, seeing it perhaps rather as a uh, the, the term that, that I've used and that you've used, I think, on occasion as well, of a revolutionary process, which implies an incomplete process that is still going forward, will go backwards. Do you still see this as something that, is, uh, that has qualitatively changed, at least at the consciousness level of the Egyptian public and perhaps others in, in Tunisia, elsewhere, um, the the notion that it is possible to claim the rights of citizenship, the uh, the legitimacy of of popular engagement, that dictatorships don't have to be only obeyed, is this something that remains? Do you think? I think it's hard to say, Phyllis. Uh, as far as I can tell, there is this subjectivity that remains associated with the. A successful uh, popular mobilization that did achieve dramatic results in Tunisia and Egypt. But there was always, and I felt it when I was in Cairo shortly after the uh, January 2011 events, that this, to, to use the language of revolution at was at best uh, dangerously premature, and that what had occurred would be more uh, accurately described, I think, as an uprising that couldn't yet even be called a revolutionary process. And one, I find increasingly instructive a comparison uh, with the Iranian revolution of 1978-79, where for all its failures, and there are many, and many uh, subsequent deficiencies, the leadership, including Khomeini, understood that one needed a fundamental transformation of the state bureaucracy if there was to be a transformative uh, effect of an uprising, that it was not enough to get rid of uh, the hated ruler and his immediate entourage, that something more fundamental, more Leninist, if you will, had to be achieved in creating a new political order. And if you compare what the Egyptian uh, uprising uh, settled for 
including its misplaced trust on the armed forces to carry out a transition process uh, with what happened in Iran, I think one sees the difference between something that can genuinely be described as revolutionary and something that is never attains that revolutionary moment. It attains a extraordinary moment of uh, successful uh, response to a dictatorial leadership, but it doesn't move sufficiently beyond that moment uh, to achieve the beginnings of a revolutionary process so that the what happens at least viewed in retrospect is that it generated a counter-revolutionary moment that the armed forces and the alienated secular elites seized upon uh, to create what has become a very uh, depressing uh, aftermath that you accurately describe as uh, a sequel to uh, Morsi in the the person of the Sisi uh, uh, dictatorship or, or regime that has been far bloodier than anything uh, that was associated with the long period of Mubarak's rule. So it's not only a, a relapse, but it's a political regression into a more uh, terrifying form of authoritarian uh, politics. You know, this leads, interestingly, to uh, some questions about Turkey. Um, which, of course, we had the election uh, in Turkey yesterday, I, I, over the weekend, with um, a surprising um, shift in the politics, not a uh, defeat exactly for the ruling AKP, the, the um, slightly Islamist, more or less conservative party that came to power 12 years ago and has transformed the Turkish economy and uh, Turkish engagement in the region, shifting, if not exactly away from Europe, at least towards a more Middle uh, uh, Eastern-based policy. Um, And with the, this was the first election of of those that have kept Erdogan and his party in power, that he didn't gain votes after the last election. Each of the first three elections were, showing more strength than in the last one. This one had less. Uh, and the party that emerged, to everybody's surprise, was this new Kurdish-dominated party that took 13% of the vote. Uh, what is your reading of that in the context of what it says about Turkish democracy, what is and is not, dare we say, revolutionary about any of these changes? How, how significant are they? And crucially, what does it say about Turkey's role in the region and in relation to the U.S. and its wars in the region? Well, finally, I find a small uh, part of your question to disagree with. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think the outcome was surprising. It was uh, predicted more or less for the last several weeks by all the political polls in uh, Turkey that uh, anticipated between 38 and 42 percent support for the AKP, which is uh, they got the upper end of what was anticipated. And it it is true that the uh, Kurdish party, the HDP, uh, did uh, significantly better than was anticipated. And actually, I think it's a very strong demonstration of the deep uh, democratic commitment uh, that the AKP has and the strengthening 
on balance of democracy in Turkey. Because if ever there was a temptation to manipulate an electoral outcome, it was here because if uh, the HDP vote had been kept under 10%, uh, the AKP uh, would have received, because it was in second place, all the uh, political party votes that were uh, under this 10% ceiling or threshold, and they could have had a majority that would then have allowed Erdogan to either through referendum or directly amend the constitution to achieve this presidential system. And what I think is impressive and has been totally ignored by the media is that this is a a healthy uh, reaction by a significant portion of the Turkish public that they Uh, that although the AKP remains uh, by far the dominant party and there's no responsible alternative to it, uh, still there was a vote against moving in this uh, quasi-authoritarian direction that was implied by the uh, uh, emphasis given to this Uh, shift from a parliamentary to a presidential system, this shift being presided over by uh, a populist uh, but very polarizing uh, uh, figure such as uh, Erdogan has been. But what emerges, I think, is this sense of resilience in in the political uh, arena that has been emerging in Turkey, and this greater diversification in the legislature has the potential to provide a much more representative democracy where all elements of the society are supported. And unlike many other countries, including many Western countries, the 97 women that were elected uh, to the uh, Turkish Uh, legislature, along with the first Roma in uh, Turkish history, the first Yazidi member, and uh, four Christians. So uh, this election, I think, really is a deepening of democracy in Turkey, provided the leadership can manage the transition to some kind of Uh, either uh, unlikely coalition or a minority government that moves toward a new set of elections uh, in a fairly short period of time. So I look at it... uh, Well, the only other thing I was going to say is that the media has, uh, in the West particularly, and to some extent the opposition media in Turkey has spun the election outcome essentially as a defeat for Erdogan, which in part it was, but it seems to me, first of all, that the outcome was explained uh, partially by other factors, such as the fact that the AKP has been in power so long and many people felt it was time for a change, and the fact that the economy has slowed significantly with rising unemployment, the unemployment level is now over 11%, and the growth rate is below 3%. Both of those uh, figures are significantly below what the AKP had been achieving uh, in earlier years of its administration. Let me ask you one follow-up to that, and then perhaps we'll check in with Helena if we have time to keep going or if we should open up the phones. You've been speaking and we've been speaking generally about the political side, both in terms of the Arab Spring and then more specifically in, in the Turkish context. I wanted to ask about the economy, which you touched on at the end just now. One of the things that I've found rather stunning in, in, uh, uh, in, in looking at Turkey in the AKP years over this last decade or slightly more has been this astonishing level of not just growth, uh, but access by 
virtually everyone in the society, the, including the poorest sectors, to the fruits of new investment in everything from healthcare and education to infrastructure, public transportation, those kinds of things. Uh, when I was in Turkey during the, the, the 2011 election, uh, which brought the, the, at that point the highest levels of support for the AKP. I was in a small town in the West where no one had voted for the AKP ever, and suddenly everybody we spoke to had voted for the AKP because they were seeing these uh, accomplishments in public access, public services. And yet it seems that the AKP's actual economic program had not broken with neoliberalism. It was very much focused on privatization, maximizing uh, uh, private investment and, and in manufacturing and tourism, that sort of thing. How do you explain how they pulled that off and what's likely to come of it with the new political arrangement that's now underway after the elections? Well, that is a very interesting question. I don't pretend to have... Uh, very convincing uh, answers to it. I do know the uh, sort of architect of Turkish economic policy, uh, Ali Babajan, who is a very capable and skillful economist who has enjoyed the confidence of the uh, Turkish political leadership and I think deserves a lot of the credit for this extraordinarily impressive uh, growth record that was comp uh, accompanied by, as you say, both poverty reduction and uh, significant service improvement in the services uh, to the poorer sectors of the society. The one thing that many people, including myself, would be critical about is that it was combined with a uh, very reckless uh, policy of encouraging uh, neoliberal uh, approaches to urban development uh, with, uh, and, and much of the economic prosperity and growth was uh, rooted in, this, uh, in the construction industry and the proliferation of malls and shopping centers uh, that uh, created a certain kind of urban sprawl that uh, underlay the protests that emerged at uh, Gezi Park in 2013 and was one of the uh, dark chapters in the uh, period of AKP uh, leadership. Uh, so I think that there there's very capable economic sophistication in the Turkish uh, government. At the same time, there's very strong uh, double pressures to improve the situation of the uh, mass of Turkish society and at the same time to trust the market and economic globalization uh, to be the basic uh, ideological underpinning of economic policy. And I'm not sure my, uh, myself whether that's sustainable over the long run and whether this construction-based uh, surge in the Turkish economy was something that cannot be uh, reproduced in more uh, lasting ways in the coming years. I just don't know whether that's possible. Well, let so, me turn uh, to Helena. Do we have time for one more, or should we open up at this point? Um, I, I tell you what, I just want to um, welcome the people who've joined us since the beginning of the call, and to remind everybody here that this is a call that I, Helena Cobbin, am hosting on behalf of my company, Just World Books, and it's to launch Richard Falk's new book, Chaos and Counter-Revolution After the Arab Spring. The book has um, just a wealth of information, most of which comes from blog posts that Richard Falk wrote over the past five years on his blog, richardfalk.wordpress. And he's pulled them together into 
very coherent and compelling book chapters, each of which has a, a super introduction. So the chapters cover respectively different countries of the Middle East, um, including Egypt, Libya, Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Turkey. And then there's a general chapter. So people can see a lot more information about the book at our website, www.justworldbooks.com. But one of the things I, I really like about this book is the way that um, you, Richard Falk, are able to pull together the sort of regional dynamics um, and to see how the effect of Turkey or Egypt or the Gulf countries in Libya or in Syria, all these kind of waves of cross-cutting influences. I, I would like to jump in with a question um, and obviously very eager to have Phyllis Bennett um, also give her take on this. What kind of effects do you think the uh, Turkish election will have um, in Syria and Iraq, which are you know, close neighbors Turkey share long borders with Turkey, and which are those are border areas that are plagued with the Islamic State right now. So it's kind of important, you know, whether the Turkish government will continue to turn a blind eye to the um, cross-border activities of the Islamic State, or what do you think is going to happen? Is are things going to change with the new role of the Kurdish Party (HDP) in Turkish politics? Uh, that's a really interesting question that it's that will, the answer to which I think will depend on how smooth the transition is in Turkey uh, now that there's no uh, assured uh, coalition uh, no no assured well there is there's absent a majority government of the sort that the AKP has uh, produced in past elections since 2002, and there's no likely coalition because the opposition parties all are deeply at odds with one another and with the AKP, so it's uh, difficult to see how this transition will be managed. My guess is that if it is successfully handled, it will lead to a, uh, an effort to uh, stabilize the relations with the uh, neighboring countries and to be more, uh, more cautious about uh, uh, supporting uh, anti-Assad elements, whatever their uh, political and religious orientation may be. I think there was a period where the Turkish government mistakenly thought that the only way to get rid of Assad was to support uh, the extremist uh, Islamic opposition. And uh, that, they, that opposition was the most effective battlefield presence, but of course it represented enacted uh, horrific policies along the way and uh, was not able to really uh, basically destabilize uh, Assad's control in Syria. So I think one has to say that uh, Turkish policy towards Syria in particular has been unsuccessful and my my uh, sense of the Turkish leadership is that they're intelligent enough uh, to recognize this uh, set of erroneous uh, policies that have been pursued in the last few years and try to contrive a more constructive approach to what is a very difficult situation. No country has successfully related to these developments in Iraq and Syria, least of all the U.S. So I think Turkey's in uh, good company in having failed to produce a coherent and constructive policy. If I could just jump in with a quick comment. Actually, this was the first thing that I, I disagree with one thing you said, Richard, which is such a rare occasion. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> 
Um, are you glad to hear that it's rare or glad to hear that I did? This is a question. Yes, uh, on, I absolutely agree that Turkey is in very good company of having a failed policy towards ISIS, towards the regional ramifications, etc. They've all failed. What I'm more worried about, uh, I'm not sure that even the best assessments of people in and around the, the new Turkish government uh, about what to do will necessarily drive the policy. One of the problems I see is this new coalition that's come into being in the last month or so with Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, and, and Qatar having at least papered over some of their differences about who to support. And they're now supporting a very large Islamist-led coalition, opposition coalition in Syria uh, that is, uh, includes as one of its major players, of course, the al-Nusra Front, the, the al-Qaeda uh, operatives in, in Syria. Uh, and I think that it was something that the three governments saw as important, not only in terms of their Syria policy, but also because the tensions between those three, uh, particularly between Turkey and, and Qatar on the one hand and Saudi Arabia on the other, had gotten quite toxic, something quite dangerous in the regional context. And I think that reality, plus the fact that there is a concern from, the, uh, from Turkish Kurds about the desperation of the Kurdish communities in both Iraq and Syria, that may push the new government to not to give up on the perceived support for, for Kurdish uh, populations, Kurdish civilians who are caught under ISIS uh, terror, uh, and that they will push to continue the military support for them as the only, the only option. They're not looking at other options. They're looking solely at the military option, as is the case with the U.S. And I'm a little afraid that even the new government, particularly with a, a heavier concentration of concern for Kurdish civilians in both countries, is likely to continue that failed policy. Interesting, interesting. Um, I just, sorry, I should have done this a little earlier to remind participants in the call if, that if they want to, figuratively speaking, put their hand up and uh, ask a question, they should just hit on their phone five star. Um, and I'm not seeing any hands up um, at this point. So I have a couple of questions. Um, Richard, you have a long um, experience of working with the Islamic um, Revolutionary Government in, in Iran, uh, it, it, sorry, Islamic Republican Government in Iran. Um, what, is, what is your view right now? We're coming to, you know, end of January is the end, is the deadline for these negotiations between Iran and the uh, P5 plus one. Um, what kind of fallout do you think if those negotiations are successful, will that help the region and how? I know that's a huge um, question. Um, so if you could just sort of give a couple of quick ideas, um, then I think it would be really interesting for listeners. Well, I, I think, Helen, it's very hard to anticipate just what the reactions will be uh, assuming that this diplomacy succeeds by the uh, June deadline. Uh, I think there will be uh, pushback from uh, Israel, uh, uh, the American Congress uh, will uh, uh, support in all likelihood a very obstructionist uh, view of this diplomacy and perhaps uh, exact standards uh, of compliance that are unrealistic or even unrealizable. And it's possible, there are rumors that uh, Israel could initiate a diversionary war against uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon or in Gaza again, and uh, thereby uh, draw somehow Iran into uh, a, a regional confrontation with uh, the U.S. and the West and destroy the diplomacy. It's, in my view, uh, this uh, breakthrough diplomatically is the most 
important and constructive initiative uh, taken by the Obama presidency. And it would be tragic for the region and indeed for the world if this kind of obstruction is uh, successfully producing a failure in the end of the effort to uh, at least stabilize that dimension of uh, the Middle East, uh, which seems still very dangerous uh, and could provoke a uh, terribly destructive uh, war with all sorts of unforeseeable uh, consequences. So I think a lot rides on uh, not only the successful uh, diplomatic process, but the aftermath of that process, somehow securing responsible implementation and hopefully a, uh, a real effort by those that are skeptical about it uh, to uh, suspend judgment uh, while the process goes forward. And my contact with the Iranians Uh, rather close to the leadership is that they are placing great emphasis on the success of this diplomacy and believe that its success will strengthen the hand of moderate forces in Iran and that if it doesn't succeed, it will uh, lead to a new surge of support for the hardline uh, approach that was associated with the Aminadjad's presidency. Thank you very much. We have a question coming in from somebody in um, area code 206, and um, I'm about to unmute you. Um, If you could identify yourself. Hello. (laughs) This is Charlton Price in Seattle. Uh, We've been listening for uh, 50 minutes to Richard's uh, very... uh, carefully worded but very slow presentation of uh, his thoughts about all these questions. And uh, the result for me is that I've learned nothing about his book. I want to mention another person at another book who should be part of this conversation. It has to do with America's role in all this. Phyllis tried to introduce America's role in her first question to Richard. Chris Hedges gave us a talk last night in Seattle where he said that uh, we must have a revolt against our plutocratic oligarchy, which is making things far worse than uh, it already is, <laughs> or they are. Wait, wait a minute. Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. I wanted. I want to know uh, why we are not discussing Americans' role, and more specifically about Richard's book. Well, I think Richard can speak for himself. Thanks for your question, um, Richard. Tell us what you think about America's role. Um, obviously, um, we have about ten minutes left, but we don't. We want another couple of questions before then. Uh, well, in brief, I think. Um that the book itself doesn't try to address uh, America's role in the sense that uh, Chris Chris Hedges is discussing the emergence of this uh, plutocratic uh, leadership uh, in in the country. Uh, It does try to uh, discuss and analyze its uh, shifting uh, attitudes toward the region in terms of these contradictions between supporting democracy, supporting Saudi Arabia, supporting Israel in relation to Palestine and in relation to uh, uh, Iran, it addresses this post-colonial role that the U.S. has played ever since the collapse of British and French influence in the region which is part of the background of the turmoil at present that I haven't mentioned in our discussion so far, but it's very important that this whole problematic in the Middle East 
is partly a legacy of the way in which World War I diplomacy uh, imposed a set of artificial political communities on the region in the aftermath of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, Richard, I also have a, a sort of a follow-up question um, about the U.S. role and about our responsibility, um, those of us who are U.S. citizens, to try to actually prevent the continuation of this warmongering that our government and, you know, our Congress and so many forces in our society have been engaged in. I, I think your, the chapter in your book about Libya, in a sense, is one of the most poignant because you and a sort of a hardy band of others were opposed to that so-called humanitarian intervention, which was actually just a military action by NATO. From the beginning, obviously, things in, in Libya have turned out very badly indeed. Do you see that there are, there's a kind of an opening for us to, to oppose the, the U.S. war policies and look at what has happened in Libya as a terrible object lesson? I hope so. I hope so. I think that it's, it's a difficult lesson for the U.S. Uh, governing elites to learn because there's been such a big investment in uh, military approaches to security that it's extremely hard to get the establishment to think outside this militarist box. And the media has encouraged this kind of constraint on the political imagination by calling only on uh, ex-military uh, officers and counterinsurgency experts uh, to discuss the feasibility of uh, a proposed intervention when it's at the policy debate stage. We need uh, much broader uh, forms of discussion to understand that there are alternatives to military intervention that are not being explored and certainly not being tested. Uh, and the consequence is that we keep repeating the failure that was so dramatized by the loss of the Vietnam War. And we don't understand that military intervention in this post-colonial era is not going to prevail against determined nationalist forces of opposition and resistance that know they have uh, a longer time horizon in which to uh, resist and tire out the intervening side. We leave and we leave behind either chaos or tyranny. If I could just add <laughs> one point to that, Helena, on, on this point about U.S. policy, I think that great... Um, accomplishments of Richard's book is that <clears throat> it constantly goes back and forth between developments in the region, on the ground, uh, people's responses, and the role of the United States. I think that's a very hard uh, balance to keep. I would just say that I have a new book coming out on ISIS and the, the, US, the new U.S. global war on terror, and one of the most difficult parts of it was getting that balance right, because while for those of us in the U.S., our obligation to challenge the illegalities of our own government's policy is certainly a primary aspect of what we do. It's also crucially important that we have the, that we respect the sense of agency of people on the ground. What the U.S. What the US is doing is not the only, uh, is not the only factor that, that comes into play, and it is very important that we understand the, uh, the shifts that go on on the ground between various social forces, political, economic forces, and others. So I think one of the things that I've really appreciated going through Richard's book in the last few days is precisely that balancing act, which I've found and I think others have found so difficult to get right. I think Richard really does an astonishing job in this book of getting that balance right. Well, I, I'm glad you, you agree with me because that's why I wanted to publish it. I mean, I think he, from his perspective, and we shouldn't embarrass him in public, but I mean, from his oh, I don't enormous... Mind. Uh, <laughs> from his enormous no, experience as, as an you know international law specialist 
over, let's say, more than four decades, and, and spanning the, that whole period from the anti-Vietnam War era until today. And so it's really important to bring those voice, voices to bear for you know, new generations and for people seeking to understand. I think another of the, of the real accomplishments of Richard's book was looking at this very turbulent period. I mean, many of us on this call, I imagine, have gone through the kind of emotional roller coaster from the heady days of early 2011. And from that point of view, I think it's great, Richard, that you started blogging, I think, just before um, the Arab Spring started. So you, you do capture in the book a lot of that excitement that so many of us felt with the kind of wave of democratization, first of all, in Tunisia and then in Egypt, and you know, then spreading to other countries. And, and then, you know, obviously, as we see from the title of the book, Chaos and Counter-Revolution Intervened. And um, in, in the introduction to the book, you do make a, a really good kind of summary of the fact that it's only in, in Tunisia and Turkey, really, that you have sort of a, a democratizing force hanging on, and it's quite uh, quite vulnerable there in the Middle East, and it's faced with this backlash of, of horrendous proportions um, funded by Saudi money and goodness only knows who else. So I think we're getting toward the end now. I want to, first of all, remind people on the call and people listening to this on the recording later to um, go and learn a lot more about the book, which is called Chaos and Counter-Revolution After the Arab Spring, um, on our website, www.justworldbooks.com. So let's wrap up, perhaps, with a couple of words from you, Phyllis Bennett, and then from you, Richard Falk, telling us what, what we can uh, hope for or what we can uh, really how, how we should think about this whole tumultuous period of the last four years. Is there hope? I think there's enormous hope. I, uh, I believe that the, uh, the transformation in public consciousness uh, in every country that experienced every version of the Arab Spring from the, the glorious in Tunisia and early on in, in Egypt to the devastating in, in, uh, in Syria to the sidelined and forgotten by so many in Bahrain. In all of these examples, there are still people striving to reach and re-reach the, the goals that were set at the beginning of these processes. And, you know, I think we're going to see even greater setbacks, if that's even something to imagine, given how horrific the situation is in Syria right now. But I don't for a minute think that there has been a lack of transformation uh, in, in this process. I think that for generations, people in, in the Middle East region, for at least two generations, there was a sense that it wasn't possible to challenge, to fight back. Uh, and particularly in the post-decolonization uh, period, the question of what fight back would look like against U.S.-backed dictatorships that seemed to be there forever, uh, there's now examples of what that can look like. Now, whether each one of them will succeed, probably not, and certainly not anytime soon. But I think that we have seen the rise of a new understanding that the, the struggle for dignity, for the rights of citizenship, uh, is something that belongs central to the Middle East as well as anywhere else, and that it's going to continue. So I'm, in the long run, despite the horrific realities of today and the medium term, in the long run, I'm very optimistic. Uh, let me add that I uh, share uh, Phyllis's analysis, uh, especially the uh, understanding that this is a process that is, is still underway and that, uh, that uh, the counter-revolutionary aftermath to the hopeful uh, uprisings of 2011 is not the end of the story. At the same time, the one concern I have is that because there is this new uh, sense of agency on the part of the peoples of the region, there's also an intensification of the uh, repressive uh, 
approaches taken by the uh, existing regimes. And in that sense, uh, the Sisi uh, experience in Egypt is a reminder that things can get worse even than they were before. So that one is likely to have contradictory developments in the immediate future, signs of the uh, revitalization of popular resistance to these kinds of governments and also intensifications of the repressive apparatus of authoritarian states. But on the end, I also am hopeful about the future. Well, I feel very, very honored that I've had the chance to have this conversation or mainly to listen to the two of you, Phyllis Bennis and Richard Falk, as you discuss Richard Falk's new book, Chaos and Counter-Revolution After the Arab Spring. I hope that, I want to thank everybody else who's been listening on the call, and I hope that people who listen to this on the podcast later also appreciate just the the breadth of information and and experience and wisdom that we were able to, to partake of here, and of course that you go out and buy the book at www.justworldbooks.com. So thank you very much, Richard Falk and Phyllis Bennett. Well, thank you, Helena, for giving us this opportunity.